0: Welcome to the LRB podcast. If you subscribe to the LRB, you can get the first 12 issues for just £12. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash pod. That's lrb.me forward slash pod. Hello and welcome to the London Review of Books podcast. My name is Thomas Jones and today I'm talking to Erin McGlocky, who teaches early modern European history at the University of Sheffield. Erin wrote in a recent issue of the LRB about the way the city of Florence responded to a plague epidemic in the early 17th century. We're speaking over the phone, of course, as we would have to be even if we were next door to each other, given the need for social distancing to limit the spread of COVID-19. But as it happens, we aren't next door to each other. Erin is in Sheffield, and I'm in central Italy in Orvieto, about 100 miles south of Florence. And... I've written a piece in the current issue of the LRB describing the first 15 days of the lockdown in Italy, which began two weeks before the lockdown in the UK. There's a strange sense I've had when talking to people in Britain that I'm speaking from the near future or to the near past, though ever less so, as the situation there comes closer to the situation here in Italy. Hello Erin, and thank you very much for joining us.
1: Hi Tom, thank you so much for having me.
0: How are are things under lockdown in Sheffield?
1: Um, well, it's quite surreal, really, quite surreal. I mean, I feel like I'm talking to a quarantine expert. Um, but um, things in Sheffield, yeah, it's very strange. I mean, I'm taking my government allowed one walk a day, which is very nice. The weather has been beautiful recently, which feels like it's sort of mock- mocking us now that we can't go outside because yeah. it's it's not nice very often in Sheffield. But yeah, we're 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 battling through.
0: And so to begin, why don't you just tell us briefly the the story of what happened in Florence in
1: 1629? Sure, yeah. So the plague arrived in in Europe originally in in 1347 for this kind of um, period of of epidemics. Um, But the one in Florence began in 1629 when troops from the 30 who were uh, fighting in Central Europe during the Thirty Years' War were kind of making their way through Northern Italy and so um, they were carrying with them fleas and the fleas were carrying with them Yersinia pestis which is the uh, bacterium that that causes uh, the bubonic plague and so as they were kind of uh, these troops were moving around Northern Europe they were spreading the plague behind them Um, and it was much worse in other Northern cities, uh, cities in Northern Italy uh, um, initially before it arrived in Florence. Um, it kind of came to the outskirts of Florence sort of early summer, 1630, and the deaths in the city began um, sort of late summer and kind of reached their height by um, late autumn, early winter of 1631. Um, as more and more people uh, started dying, obviously panic began to rise in the city. And in January of 1631, they decided, um, the health board in the city, known as the Sanita, decided to implement a kind of general quarantine. So everyone had to stay home for 40 days. Um, and I think it's something that you wrote about in your piece, too, that that 40 days kind of recalls the period of uh, the flu- of Noah's flood, right? So it is sort of this really resonant, um, yeah, resonant period of time.
0: And where did that the modern quarantine that began in Venice is that right So in the after the Black Death yeah,
1: yeah that's right. so um, during the Black Death, um, Venice um, decided to um, kind of make ships that were carrying cargo wait um, outside of the port for forty days before allowing them into the city. Um, and that's because they recognised that the Black Death really travelled with cargo and particularly um, textiles and things like this, soft materials. So they, they decided to implement this kind of whole 40-day holding period.
0: So even though they didn't know it was fleas and rats, they did know that it was the kind of cargoes that fleas and rats would, would live in. Exactly. Um, but did Venice ever, or any other city before Florence in 1629, have this sort of lock down the entire city in the way that Florence did, or is that the was Florence the first city to try this locking down of the whole the whole city
1: yeah, I mean so other cities in the fourteenth century and then again in the seventeenth century were experimenting with different degrees of lockdown, but it seems that Florence um, had a sense of the kind of total lockdown of the city of being, as being a quite new invention, and they really debated whether or not to do it because they recognized that it had um, you know a huge um, potential impact on the local economy, of course people being out of work and needing food provisioning and so forth, which is all um, kind of uncannily <laughs> um, yeah coming back coming back now with covid nineteen. Um, but in the 14th century, they they experimented with with various forms of of isolation, but um, not to the same extent that Florence did in, in 1630.
0: Right, and because the practice of that sick people being taken apart and kept in, they got lazzaretti. Is that what they? Is that the right word? Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's right. So that was another kind of Black Death medieval medieval plague era um, invention, and it and it started in Venice again because they actually. Uh, the first Lazaretto was on an island. They they actually just used an island and the lagoon um, as a place to kind of to quarantine people. Um, so this is that is a kind of common um, public health technology that emerges from the plague and continues the early modern period.
0: Were there doctors in the, the Lazaretti or were there were the people there looked after or were they just? Pushed away and, and abandoned.
1: No, they were incredibly well looked after. Um, so there were yeah. there were many plague doctors um, in the seventeenth century who um, who were um, also kind of actually like medical professionals today under particular um, kinds of rules because they were highly exposed. So they often had to live alone. Um, they wore protective clothing. I mean, we all I think kind of know that famous uh, plague beak right of, this, of the sort of plague mask of the early modern Exactly
0: the carnival which yeah which is a, a carnival character mask Exactly um, his name exactly,
1: exactly but in but in in the early modern period that beak would have been stuffed with um like sweet herbs and incense which was meant to kind of filter or what they thought was this sort of putrefying or corrupt air
0: but presumably it had, it did have some effects of, I mean, not in terms of purifying the air, but in terms of keeping distance and, and and a physical barrier, it must have helped a bit, presumably. So even though their science was dodgy, they, the way they acted on it was.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, presumably, you know, because it spread, because it's spread by fleas. And I mean, it's only rarely, the plagues only rarely spread um, from human to human, right? Only when it's, um, I think it's <laughs> pneumatically, because the only time it's spread from human to human. So you know what I think what really um, is a barrier to bubonic plague transmission more than anything is, is um, uh, isolation and distancing, um, where, where it seems that mortality rates seem to have been highest were in high density housing, particularly like around the, with uh, people who were working in the textile industry and things like that.
0: And did the measures that they took in Florence so, so if you briefly go through them, people had to stay in their houses as we do now it's that and were they allowed out for an hour's exercise a day <laughs> presumably not <laughs> no
1: <laughs> so so yeah so in january um they implemented this general quarantine on the city um women and children were actually um locked in their houses first um and that was because they thought that they were sort of um um sort of more vulnerable um on the one hand, but also sort of more culpable, right, that they, they were sort of um, harder to control and so might spread the disease faster. Um, eventually, as the kind of mortality rates were ticking up, they decided to also kind of implement this general quarantine um, and quarantine men too, and... Um, it didn't apply to everyone. So um, if you were wealthy and lucky enough to have a house in the countryside, you could you could leave and go there. Um, some men, I think over the age of 12 who were working could um, have a health pass to go out, which I know a health pass is something that you now have to write in Italy these days, too. Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: It was somewhat uneven in the way that it was applied based on kind of class and gender. Um but no, you didn't, didn't have your, your uh, government-allowed walk once a day.
0: But key, key workers, as we're now calling them, um, were allowed, as you say, obviously, because if they were delivering food, there were food deliveries to every house every day is that right so there must have been people
1: yeah so there were there were like thousands of people who were involved in food provisioning obviously the warehousing of food in the city distributing it um a lot of them were involved were members of confraternities which were these kind of charitable lay organizations in the city who undertook these kind of um yeah voluntary charitable roles so um some of the, including food provisioning um transporting the sick and then so forth
0: and when people fell ill were they expected to stay at home or were they taken to, to the lazaretto? To...
1: Yeah. So so when people fell ill they were um they were meant to notify um a doctor who would then come to their house and certify that they were in fact ill and they would remove um the sick person to a plague hospital which was a terrifying prospect. I mean we know now that the Florentine plague hospitals had about a fifty percent mortality rate, and so people were said to fear them more than death. And I think, um, you know, they they did often receive quite good medical care there, but but um, I don't think anyone would really like those odds. Um, and then the people who the sort of family members in the home were then actually sort of locked up uh, behind a barred door and kept kept in the home, and then often. Um, the sort of belongings in that home so especially soft materials cloth bedding mattresses would be burned um in the street so there was always the worry that people wouldn't report plague cases because of course it means seeing your loved one shipped off to this quite terrifying hospital and having you know your your possessions potentially taken away and burned
0: and obviously as they didn't have antibiotics there was no they didn't actually have any treatment for the plague it was just a question of looking after people and hoping they'd recover
1: they did have they did use medicines um like sort of different uh, concoctions theria concoctions and cordials and things like that and there was actually a great confidence in florence that medicine worked and that doctors knew what they were doing and that wasn't always true in other cities so in venice and milan there was a great um, suspicion about kind of charlatans and fake doctors um but in florence there seems to have been a kind of great confidence in in public health
0: which must have helped with the Enforcing the quarantine as well that if, if people if the people trust the, the, the sunny thad and they 're more likely to to do what they ask and do we know why that is why the florentines were more speaking of authority or is it or of doctors or it 's just
1: it 's really i mean it 's really hard to know i mean um, you know in in Milan in the same epidemic there were absolutely rampant rumors about what they called the untori, these kind of um, mysterious anointers who uh, were said to kind of go around churches and swirl infection into the stoops that contained holy water or they'd smear infection onto doorways and church pews and Those, you know, became kind of part of this really like classic understanding of what the plague was like in the 17th century. But there was really very little of that in Florence. There was one doctor um, who is said to be either Neapolitan or Sicilian, so sort of suspiciously, (laughs) suspiciously foreign, um, (laughs) who who was um, accused of poisoning. Um, poisoning his patients with rotten chickens and things like that, but that seems to really have been the only the only case
0: of that. Okay, and um, but were any was there, were any? I mean, one of the things that we've seen in some of the more unfortunate responses to COVID nineteen from the Trump administration, but also from people in in the street, that there's racist ideas that it's somehow that it's a foreign it's a foreign disease that it's come from China, and that was was there. I mean, you've mentioned the prejudice against Neapolitans and Sicilians, but were there was there any other prejudice against groups who were who were suspected of having brought it into the city, or were they more more rational about that?
1: I think there are there are lots of prejudices. Um, one that is actually continuous with um, the Black Death, the 14th century plague, is um, uh, suspicion and prejudice against Jews. Um, they were some of the first to be kind of fully locked up um, and quarantined. They thought that perhaps um, their their black hat sort of festered, putrefaction, festered contagion, um, and that that was a kind of very common response in Italy at the time to 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 be suspicious of Jews. Another um, population who were marginalized were uh, prostitutes or sex workers. Um, sex was thought to Generate excess heat in the body, um, which, if your kind of medical understanding is based on humoral theory, would make you more vulnerable to to infection, to disease, um, and of course, there's also a kind of moral contagion idea there too. So, prostitutes were also, um, yeah, marginalized during plague, plague epidemics, and then I think the poor were were. A kind of broad category, which is something I was kind of interested in the piece too. That there is this really interesting tension between the rhetoric against the poor on the part of the government, um, which often, you know, sees the poor as both vulnerable, but also as um, sort of essentially irrespons- um, irresponsible, not civic-minded. Um, even their bodies were thought to be more kind of corruptible. So one of the Physicians in Florence at the time, Alessandro Righi, has a theory um, that the poor sort of fester a plague in their bodies um, in a way that nobles don't. Um, but then, on the other hand, they also looked after them and they had this kind of extensive welfare program and food provisioning, as we as we spoke about. So there's a kind of really interesting tension there between um, both blaming the poor and and also. Um, and also looking out for them, which I which I was really interested in the piece.
0: And that is again is is recognisable from what's happening now. There's this that you mentioned that people are worried that if you give people enough to eat without making them work, then they'll they won't go back to work when when you want them to. And that same, I might as well you expressed it much better than me. So you said yeah, uh, Rondinelli, who was one of the a contemporary historian um, worried that quarantine would give the poor the opportunity to be lazy and lose the desire to work having for 40 days been provided abundantly for all their needs and you hear Republicans in the US Congress are saying almost exactly that now and you know and in. And and the right the right in in the UK as well and here in Italy.
1: Yeah, it's it's a little scary. I mean, I think and when when the Florentines were debating whether to enact this general quarantine, it was this problem of work that they really they really were worried about. That you know, what would it look like to have so many people in the city unemployed and and not earning, and how would we provision for that? Um, and so kind of early on in the plague, they thought, well, we'll just um, sort of, you know, give unemployed people some work and that will kind of help them through. So they had unemployed men from the countryside, you know, working, constructing the Boboli Gardens and working in the Palazzo Pitti, building their chapel and things like that. Um, but they got sick and died because, of course, what, what vulnerable people need is not more work, but <laughs> but more rest, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. As in the way that the factories staying open and Amazon warehouses staying open and, and all the rest of it, which do seem to be sites of of contagion now, but but also that there was before the, in the years before the plague started, isn't it right that there was? I'm not sure a recession is probably an anachronistic word, but there was there were problems in the world market and there was a lot of unemployment and and there were economic problems before before the plague arrived.
1: Yeah. So. There were widespread famines. Um, there were religious wars, um, unemployment. As you say, like Florence was a kind of center of the textile industry and had already, this, the textile industry had already um, been been suffering in the past kind of few decades before the plague. So there already was unemployment and hunger. So when the plague came, um, people were more, I think, more vulnerable to disease. And that was recognized at the time. Um, and I... Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking a lot about this in the way that people talk about COVID. That it kind of somehow reveals um, fractures in society that are that are sort of that have been here all along, um, and that the people who we call key workers now um, were certainly not thought of key, thought of as key workers even a month ago. I think early modern people would have really appreciated the idea that the plague is a kind of clarifying moment right that it reveals to us things that were previously hidden i think that's a very early modern idea but i see it in in the newspaper every day now
0: yeah with the the people who a month ago were called low skilled and said that they wouldn't be able to get visas to come and work in in the uk and now and now key workers you're listening to the lrb podcast if you subscribe to the lrb you can get the first 12 issues for just 12 pounds go to lrb.me forward slash pod that's lrb.me forward slash pod in florence that you said that it was thought that the um that the nobles were less susceptible did that did those assumptions change because presumably or were they because were they because of social distancing or whatever <laughs> the equivalent would have been or because they were allowed to leave the city and, and go to their their country houses did fewer rich people die than poor people or was that was it was everyone equally susceptible? I mean, was the plague revealed to be a, a social leveler, or did, or were those class distinctions reflected in the the people who suffered?
1: That's a really good question. Um, I don't, I don't know this the exact statistics about, or even, um, yeah, I don't know the exact statistics about how, um, mortality differed. I would say that because it seems like higher mortality rates were associated with poor neighborhoods with with high density housing and particularly with this kind of, um, the neighborhoods where, uh, textiles were produced. It does seem as though, um, you know, uh, lower paid workers were probably had a higher mortality rate than the elite. Um, but certainly the elite, the elite died too. I mean, I think there's a story in the, in the piece about, um, I think it's the wife of the the Chancellor of the sanita died. But even again in death, you can sort of see some of that social stratification. So um, one of the great horrors of the early modern plague is that you would be buried in a plague pit in these kind of anonymous mass graves outside the city walls when ordinarily, you know, in normal times, you would have been buried in your parish. Um, but the wife of the the Chancellor of the sanita um, was given permission to be buried in her parish church. Um, which was, you know, uh, not something that ordinary people were privileged to necessarily.
0: But did, and did people attend her funeral? Because it's certainly that funerals were one of the earliest things to be banned in Italy. And the idea of banning funerals seems so, still seems quite a shocking idea. But, but one of the main the, the epicentres of, of transmission early on was a funeral. Um, and there have been these striking and shocking images of, of army lorries turning up in in uh, in Lombardy to take away coffins, and the story' is coming from spain of of ice rinks being used as as makeshift morgues and, and so I think that i mean the practice but also the you know the the fear of the of the plague pit equivalent is still with us now, and even the fact that it should be is, is in itself quite quite shocking
1: yeah i mean it's um, a horror of like of anonymity isn't it that you could just be mm-hmm. kind of one of one of many and yeah I mean that was something. Um, one historian of the plague has argued that it was that horror of anonymity of anonymity and the horror of the plague pit, which you know led people to um, disguise cases of the plague right from from the government because they just couldn't couldn't bear the thought of of their loved ones being buried in a plague pit.
0: And the people who survived, and when they were locked in their houses, and what did I mean? Did people keep records of what they of what they did and how they coped with the, the boredom and the, the solitude? As is- as much as anything else.
1: I think, as ever, for early modern history, our best records are not always... I mean, the, the our, our main records for this plague year are by elite men. Um, our records for how ordinary people coped mostly come from court cases, so mostly come from uh, people who coped in ways uh, that meant breaking, breaking the law. Um, so... One of the things I absolutely loved about John Henderson's book um, was all of the stories that he pulled from those court cases um, about, you know, people chatting in the street or, um, you know, doing some some mending for their for their, you know, children or, um, you know, girls dancing together in their apartment buildings and things like that. These kind of like very ordinary ways in which, um, yeah, people tried to kind of break up the loneliness and the boredom, which. When I originally read that book, I thought, um, you know, it's really moving, and now I um, kind of can't believe that we're we're living it.
0: And the when this, the story about the um, the woman mending her son's clothes is that right? He was in the apartment below, and she lowered things on a basket. Yeah. But it, but it, see, I think that was a sort of quite a standard Florentine practice for for not having to go downstairs to talk to people, because in Arnold Arnold Bennett's diary from when he was in Florence in the early twentieth century, he describes people lowering baskets from their windows and people in the street putting things in that they wanted and taking them back up and actually one of the the many memes that's circulating here now shows these <laughs> across a courtyard a couple with a dog and they lower the dog on the lead from the balcony <laughs> and it sort of <laughs> potters about on the on the ground beneath and then they pull it back up by the lead <laughs> That's amazing. Dangling slightly, quite a small dog, obviously, it's a, it's a terrier. It's slightly pathetic, dangling from its lead from its collar. Um, which people, some people react to you, thinking it's hilarious and other people think it's very cruel. And of course, the other thing is that one thing that we're, I mean, this conversation that we're having now means that we're everyone, we're all locked in our houses. But I'm speaking to my parents far more often than I was a month or two ago, were people were you people still allowed to write letters? What what levels of communication were were permitted in Florence?
1: Yeah, people uh, people certainly wrote letters. Um, there is some good evidence um, from these court cases again that people shouted to each other from their windows. Um, they because often their front doors were were actually physically barred. Um, they would climb out their windows and go up to their balconies um, and and just talk to each other talk to each other out in the out in the fresh air. Um yeah so there were lots of ways to kind of to get around it and to to talk to each other.
0: Yeah and in terms of long in terms of news from other places mm. how did they know, how did the people in Florence know what was happening in Milan?
1: Yeah so so in the 17th century lots of these Italian cities had their own health board their own sanita and they would send letters back and forth to each other um kind of reporting on the news which is actually how Florence um, you know, of course, first became aware that um, there was this growing epidemic. They were getting letters from Milan, from Bologna, um, from Verona, kind of describing what was happening happening in those cities. Um, and the early letters are really moving, really, because they're trying to work out what it is, right? And they sort of don't want to say that it is the plague, because, of course, they say that it is, that it's um, you know, hugely worrying and um, and might kind of set off a panic. Um, but it was a really important way for them to kind of get a sense of, of what was happening and, and sort of um, ready themselves, right, to kind of to, to prepare for the epidemic.
0: But they didn't actually lock down, as we haven't, until the death toll reached a, a certain level.
1: Yeah, they didn't yeah. lock down until January and the plague had arrived in August. But what's interesting is that, so the 1630-31 epidemic Um, kind of tailed off in early summer around um, sort of um, May, June Um, and then but it came back again um, in 1632, 1633 for a much shorter um, period of time and when it came back they Lockdown more quickly and more extensively. So, for example, in 1630, they left the Mercato Vecchio open, the kind of main market in the city they left open. In 1633, they shut it down almost immediately. So it seems as though they learned their lesson about how quickly they need to respond, um, which I feel like is unfortunately a lesson we're learning now too, right?
0: And indeed, that countries where SARS was a bigger problem in 2003 that in, in South Korea and in Singapore and China and Japan, they seem to have acted much more quickly and been much more prepared and had the equipment and, and seem to have done a much quicker and better job at, at stopping it than than countries that didn't have that experience with SARS. So maybe next time, next time we'll do better too. <laughs> Think, yeah, I so even thinking about next time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and presumably one of the reasons they waited in... When, it, when the plague hits in August that they they wanted to get the harvest in before they shut down there must have been those sorts of I mean partly economic but also if you're going to shut the city and feed it 30,000 people as it then was you're um you're going to need to have enough food to do that so you're going to have to carry on those essential services as we'd call them now it's very hard not to use these anachronistic yeah, yeah. terms and talking about it.
1: I mean I think you know then, then as now the prospect of really just suspending life as you know it is a, is a huge, huge decision. And I mean, I think, you know, as politicians now are worried about the unpopularity of the decision, you know, I'm not sure that early modern politicians thought or governors sort of thought in terms of popularity, but certainly in terms of the kind of overall effect that it would have on the city and the way that they would afford it and provision for it. And it's a it's a yeah, it's a, obviously a huge, a huge decision to make.
0: So you've already mentioned this, um, but that you wrote your your review before COVID nineteen arrived in Europe, um, or before we realised that it had arrived, and in the sense that that you're thinking about what happened in Florence then has changed since since you wrote the piece. And and just if I re- read the uh, the end, that you remember the about the difference between. And here we go. Percentages tell us something about living and dying, but they don't tell us much about survival. Florentines understood the dangers, but gambled with their lives anyway, out of boredom, desire, habit, grief. To learn what it meant to survive, we might do better to observe Maria and Camilla, the teenage sisters who danced their way through the plague year.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's a very strange feeling to write a kind of historical essay about something, and then almost immediately afterwards, find yourself living through something so similar. um, Because I think... I'm constantly calibrating my own experience against what I was writing about. I mean, one of the strangest moments is when those videos of Italians singing from their balconies started to go viral. Um, because in Florence in 1630, um, you know, they held um, mass on the street for people during quarantine. So the priest would kind of stand at the junction of a couple of streets on the street corner and lead everyone in, in singing hymns. And, and Rondinelli, who is a kind of elite, he was the sort of, you know, official librarian of the Grand Duke and he wrote the kind of official history of the plague, um, said that it was so moving um, and, and so beautiful to kind of witness all of these people singing together. And when I first read that, I thought, well, of course he thinks, of course he thinks it's beautiful. He's walking around on the street. He's not behind a door. And as soon as I saw those videos, I thought I have to, I have to reassess that because it actually is really, it actually is really beautiful. um, And is this kind of incredible moment of solidarity and collectivity. I mean, I think one of the most Dislocating and kind of surreal experiences of 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 COVID is that we are all atomized and isolated in our houses. Um, there is no social life to speak of, and yet we are all going through the same thing. It's the strangest tension, and I think, you know, reading about the singing in Florence and then seeing the videos, I think, okay, I actually understand this now. It is not just this kind of elite. Um, man who has the freedom of the street to kind of observe what's happening behind closed doors but actually singing is this kind of incredible moment yeah way of kind of expressing a collective experience that you otherwise can't do because of sort of social well social distancing
0: yes <laughs> Great. did
1: you did you did you feel that when you were i mean have you have you taken parts in part in any sing-along
0: yeah well no well actually in the is it's, it's it is very odd that there's my family and we've been out on the balcony at those times when people are supposed to get out on the balconies and there's nobody else there. Oh, I mean, no. it really is. Oh, no. <laughs> we don't have that. And it's partly, I mean, it's living in a relatively, I think, in the big cities and you see those, you know, huge apartment block complexes in Naples and, and Rome and Milan and, it, and how close people are to each other. Yeah. Um, we live in an apartment in a house, which there's one other apartment in... They're the people downstairs, and we haven't seen them, you know. And partly because we don't want to pass up on the stairs, so if they're on the stairs, we wait till they've gone in or out before we go in or out. And the stairs stairs smell very strongly of bleach because we're not having to wash the stairs because they're washing them every day. Which <laughs> <laughs> and the household. I mean, that was another question that the the shape of the household now. I mean, the assumption now is is of the nuclear family, although that's obviously not true for very many people and that the question that the British government not seeming to have thought about children of separated parents, for example, um, or also if you have a house with several unrelated people who are living together, which is you know, a fairly common situation, people living by themselves who rely on people coming in to help them, all these situations that haven't been thought through. But the, what was the the household in Florence in 1630? What was what was, as it were, the, aver- the average household or the, the assumed average household then?
1: Um, it probably also wasn't really the nuclear family, so often extended families. Um, so sort of multiple branches of the same family might live together in one kind of um, large, both in the elite, within one palazzo, and they would each have kind of one section of the palazzo. Um, or, you know, siblings could live together, Um it was, yeah, often, often just a kind of more, more extended family, I think, than we, than we are, are used to.
0: And would they be separated from each other? That if you had sort of cousins living in apartments in the same palazzo, would they be separated, or or would it just be the whole palazzo would be shut down together?
1: I don't, you know, I don't know the answer to that. I would, no. I would imagine that. Um, if there had been a member of the household who was identified as sick, then he would be taken away to the plague hospital, and then the entire household would be would be kind of um, shut down together. Um, I don't think they had a sense of kind of quarantine or separation within a single household in the way that we are now told to kind of, have, you know, sort of um, isolate someone who has COVID with you know in, within a space in the home.
0: Rich households as well presumably had a, a lot of servants living there um and would they they'd have stayed with the families they work for or were they sent home to, to their mothers as it were how would how would that have worked
1: yeah i mean so i have there's some interesting evidence of the servants working in the lazaretto working in a plague hospital um so there was there was one servant um who who was working in the plague hospital and of course once they were they were working there they had to stay there they couldn't leave. Um. And this woman, Maria, made it eight days working as a servant in the plague hospital before she decided to quit. Um, and she kind of waited for a moment when there was no one no one around, and she could just kind of walk out of the doors, um, which was obviously illegal because once you were working in a plague hospital, you had to stay there. You couldn't go home. And when she was hauled in front of the court for this, she said, well, you know, I have two children. I had to go home. But also, um, I could not stay because of the great stink, which I think is a kind of interesting insight into just just how how tough it was to to work in one of those plague hospitals
0: and also um part of the i suppose one of the most reassuring things about the story is that after six months which does seem an interminable amount of time at the moment the disease went away and people got better and there weren't any new cases and and in june 1631 people were allowed out and they came back into the onto the streets and into the squares and life could begin again
1: which just seems almost impossibly far away now just for that yeah (laughs) yeah. Yeah. I don't know I mean one of the things that's so interesting about the you know the plague this is something that um, the historian Julia Calvey talks about the plague lends itself so well to history writing because there's this kind of gathering sense of tension, right, as as the kind of epidemic is drawing closer, and then the tragedy, like the sort of climax of death and and these kind of public health measures, and then it goes away again. And so it has this kind of natural narrative arc that makes it, um, you know, so, such a great subject for history writing. But because of that narrative arc, you don't always think about what comes afterwards, and that's what I've been thinking about so much now. Like, what is on the other side of this you know how does how does COVID does COVID does COVID change the way that we live does COVID change how we work the economy like what what is the the aftermath of this um because of I think the way plague stories are told I'm not sure that I I can make any informed historical guesses
0: right but uh, so after the the in in Henderson's book he does he he end in that he ends in June. 1631, does he? That's with the end of... uh...
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the sort of end of the main narrative. He has an epilogue for this um, kind of second, shorter outbreak in 1632-33. And that's it. Um, So we don't really know what happened afterwards. And I think, so historians, um, I think there was a recent paper last year that came out that tried to measure the kind of economic impact of the plague epidemic of, of 1630. Um, on Northern Italy, and he argued that, you know, while there was a kind of ongoing um, economic crisis in the decades before the plague, that the plague really was what kind of triggered um, northern Italy's economic decline throughout the rest of the seventeenth century. Um, and it's something that I'd love to read more about because I, I suppose with the kind of mass unemployment um, and and financial um, crash or, well, financial recession that seems to be, you know, potentially sparked by COVID. Um, yeah, I'd like to know more about, about what happens after the plague year.
0: That seems a, a good point on which to end. Thank you, Erin, very much. You can read Erin's piece in the 20th of February issue of the LRB. Um, you can read my piece in, the, I think, 2nd of April issue of the LRB. Um, thank you very much for listening and thank you, Erin, for, for joining us.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: The Current Issue also has pieces by David Runciman and William Davis on the politics of COVID-19, James Meek on the Black Death of 1348, as well as Rosa Lister on the contemporary water crises in Cape Town and Mexico City, and Julian Barnes on J.K. Wiesman's. To subscribe, go to lrb.me forward slash pod, and you can get 12 issues of the LRB for just £12.